Folks, we're turning now to God's Word, and uh, Andrew is going to share with us from uh, 1 Kings. We're reading from 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, some selected verses from 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, and Andrew will lead us in the reading of God's Word, and then Gareth will come and share from God's Word with us this morning. Good morning. Today's reading is taken from 1 Kings 8, beginning at verse 6. The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have filled it, as it is today. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Yet you give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day the place of which you said, My name shall be there. So you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Andrew, thank you so much for reading God's word for us. Guys, it is so good to, well, I wish I could say see you, but be with you in your living room, on your device, wherever you are. Thank you for sharing with us in worship today. Man, I can't wait until it's safe to bring us all back together, Uh, and hopefully those days are coming soon. Um, This morning, we are continuing in our series, The Story We Live In Is The Story We Live Out, just deep diving into the story of Scripture uh, that, that God gives us. Uh, And then allowing that to form not just us, but the spill out of us to speak prophetically into the world and the culture around us, to begin to form it as well. Um, What we see in the Bible is good news, not just for us, but for the whole world. And so today, we are looking at the area of temple and uh, the temple in the Old Testament. But we're going to be all over the place today. We're going to go back in the Bible story. We're going to go forward in the Bible story. We're going to go forward to things that haven't even happened yet. So you're going to need a coffee. I hope you have one. Uh, You're going to need a croissant or uh, a bit of toast with marmalade, something to keep your energy levels up. So make sure you've got that. You might also want a Bible notebook and pen uh, because this is going to be all over the place this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. You ready? Here we go. Father, you are so good. You are so good, and forgive us in the moments when we doubt that. The sun shining outside, the breath in our lungs, 
that, that even though we can't all be together, we can worship like this, that you've given us technology that connects us with, with family and friends and church family, and that through your word and by your spirit, you are continually calling us home into a life with you. God, take your words this morning and shape our minds and shape our hearts. And then like it says in, the, in Psalm 23, let our cups runneth over. May your word and your goodness, your grace and your mercy just fill us to the point of overflowing and spill out of us into the lives of the people around us, into the streets around us. That this story we live in will indeed be the story that shapes the city of Belfast, this land of Ireland, and indeed the very world itself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, one of my heroes, you have heroes when you're 41. You're all thinking, you can't be 41, Gareth. You look far too young. Uh, thank you. But one of my heroes is Bear Grylls. He's not that much older than me. And I get Bear Grylls is the kind of character you either really, really like or you can't really have. But I think he's class. He's a Christian. He's an adventurer. He's a bit of a leadership guru. But I've read a number of his books, and one of his books is called Facing Up. And it's the story about the early part of his life, sort of late teens, early 20s, when he climbed Mount Everest, which, let's be honest, is no mean feat. Um, in 1998, Bear Grylls became the youngest British climber ever to ascend and descend Mount Everest. Now, others have done it since then, but in 1998, he was the youngest person to do it. What made that particularly spectacular was two years before, in 1996, Bear Grylls was in the SAS, and whilst doing a parachute jump, broke his back. Now, that's pretty full on. And I get a lot of people don't recover from that kind of an injury, but, but he did. He was able to. And not only recover, and not only get up and walk again, but to be able to train and to go two years later and climb and descend Mount Everest. Pretty awesome thing. And he gives God all the glory for that in the book. But what is particularly caught my attention was a training, the training he had to do to get him to a fitness level where he could climb and descend Mount Everest. And he talks about being out for a run, a 40-mile run, as you do, um, in the deals, and pack on, middle of the night, freezing cold, training run, you know, maybe halfway into it, just everything was hurting, tempted to give up. And he says, you know, in moments like that, sometimes it's really helpful to, to know the story you're in, to know where you've been and where you're going, and to recognize the moment that you're in. That two years previously, he'd been on a spinal board, not sure if he'd ever walk again, and now he's training to do one of the hardest athletic events or in, endeavors ever. And he says, knowing the moment in the story you're in is so important. It's so important. And, and I think that's really, really true for this cultural moment with COVID. And we'll talk more about that again. Knowing the moment and the story we're in and where we are and what God is doing. But as we approach this text this morning that Andrew read for us about the Old Testament temple, 
it's really important to grasp the fact that the temple is not just a moment in history, but a continuous theme that God uses again and again and again as he tells his story. Now, you might get that already. That might seem totally new. I'm hoping in the next 30 minutes you'll have grasped that, processed that a bit more. So here, here's what I want to share with you. We start off with the Old Testament temple. Um, David had this dream when he brought the capital of city for God's people, the Israelites, into Jerusalem. He had this dream that he would build a temple for the Lord. And God said, no, you've got so much blood on your hands. I don't want you to do it, but actually I want your son Solomon to be the one to build the temple. So that's fine. Um, David draws up the plans. He gathers all the resources, the, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the cedar wood. And um, whenever he dies, the throne, the crown goes to Solomon, his son. And one of Solomon's endeavors was to build the temple in Jerusalem. And it was spectacular. Historians tell us it was absolutely stunning. And the temple's completed. And on the, the final day of completion, if you like, there's a whole festival atmosphere. It's called the, festival of, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the festival atmosphere happens. There are hundreds, thousands of animal sacrifices made because that's how they worship back then. And in the midst of it all, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, uh, with the Ten Commandments in it, is carried by the priests into the temple. And not just into the temple, but into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. And it's laid down there. And we're told as the priests withdraw, God's presence fills the temple. What's interesting, it says God's presence comes as a dark cloud and fills the temple. We often think of God coming as a light, but sometimes God comes in a dark cloud. We saw that at Mount Sinai as well. And God's presence fills the temple. And Solomon has this three foot, three foot, that's about three foot, bronze platform erected. And he stands on it and he leads the Israelites, the, the priests and the rulers and the people. He leads them in worship. And 1 Kings chapter 8 is the, the prayer he prays, the liturgy that he preaches and leads the people through. Michael, we might get you a three-foot-tall bronze platform. What do you think? You up for that? Okay. Okay. He's not biting, so he's not. But I, I don't know. We'll look into that. Um, but Solomon stands on this three-foot-tall bronze thing, platform, and preaches to the people and leads the people in worship. And it is incredible. And the temple from that moment on in history is the place of worship. It's the place of sacrifice. It's the place of reconciliation, the place of teaching, the place of justice, the place of hospitality and welcome to strangers, the place of liturgy, the place of festival. Basically, the temple in Jerusalem becomes the very center, the very center of Israelite life. And the reason for that, there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that the temple is the place of God's presence. Now, we, we find our heads, it's, it's hard for us to get our heads around this, but the temple is the place of God's presence. When you read through this prayer that Solomon prays in verses 27, 28, you see uh, almost a feeling of conflict that Solomon feels as he prays this prayer, as he leads the people in worship. 
Solomon prays, um, God, like I'm standing here in front of this building and this room and this space, and we were thinking you're going to move in here. But, but you're God. Like the highest heavens can't contain you. The earth itself can't contain you. You're bigger and greater and better and more awesome than all of it. Have we got this wrong? You're going to move into this building. And what he was wrestling with, what he was wrestling with was the, the difference in omnipresence and manifest presence. When I was a kid, um, when we got sick, <clears throat> not, not proper sick, but you were kind of like a sore throat sick or a funny tummy sick, and you got to take a day off school, it was great. Um, Mum and dad would bring the TV from the kitchen down into our bedroom. Uh, and that was, it was almost like a wee incentive to get sick and fake it for a day. Uh, but the TV, like we're going back 35 years here, you know, so it's not your widescreen plasma. Uh, we're talking a wee yellow portable TV with an aerial on top that you had to wiggle around. And it wasn't buttons, it was a dial you had to twist and fuzzy static, fuzzy static. Oh, wait, wait, there's the BBC. No, I've lost the BBC. Back, back. You with me? If you're under 35, you've no idea what I'm talking about. But the rest, if you get it. Um, we used to get the TV brought into our bedroom and used to tune it in to get the right channel. And the, the TV signal was always there, always coming in. But it was only when you tuned into the right channel did you get to experience it yourself. And maybe that's a really bad example of the difference between omnipresence and manifest presence. God is everywhere all of the time. But there are moments when it feels like he shows up. There are moments when it feels like he moves. There are moments when you get to experience him, where, where heaven breaks in, where not just God's presence, but his rule and his reign take control of that moment in the room, in the space. And that's literally what the Israelites' belief was about the temple, because God had told them that was the case, that in the temple, heaven and earth would overlap. God's presence would be and God's rule and reign would be. God would be everywhere doing all kinds of stuff all over the world all the time because he's omnipresent. But in the temple, he was specially present. His presence was manifest, was tangible, could be experienced, could be known. And we see it in the text because as Solomon prays this prayer, God's presence fills the temple in a dark cloud in a very tangible, real way. So the symbol is the place of God's presence, the place where heaven and earth overlap. That was the, the theological belief that they had. The other thing um, that the temple was, it was the place of God's purpose. You like what I did there with the two Ps, presence and purpose? It was the place of God's purpose. Um, in verse 60 of the prayer that Solomon prays, he says that th this will be a place where all people on earth will know that the Lord is God. A place that all people on earth will know that the Lord is God. N.T. Wright, um, Anglican theologian, he says that the temple was not a safe place to escape the rest of the world but the temple was a sign to the rest of the world of what God was doing and was going to do for the whole world. It wasn't that the Israelites were meant to go and escape to the temple. It was that the temple was meant to remind them and to show the whole world of God's purpose for the whole world. 
Isaiah said it. Jesus quoted him. He said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Do you remember Jesus saying that? My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He was quoting Isaiah when he said it. And that wasn't just about hospitality. Hospitality is really important. It's really important that in the Old Testament that um, foreigners, people who were not native-born Jews, Gentiles, if you like, were welcomed to come to the temple to see God, to know God, to worship God. And, and today as well, hospitality for people who, who are from other parts of the world is, is paramount. It is so, so important. But this prayer of Isaiah, this prayer of Jesus, this prayer of Solomon, it's more than about hospitality welcoming others in. It's more than that. It's a reminder that God wants to make his presence and his love and his ways and his forgiveness known to the whole world. The temple was a physical reminder that God was the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And what he was doing for the, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people in that moment, he wanted to spill out of there and do for the whole world. That's why Jesus says, you know, you are a light on a hill, but who puts a light on a hill then covers it with a bushel? I think there's a Sunday school song about that, isn't there? Why would you put a light on a hill that was meant to give light to the whole world and then cover it up? And yet that's what the Israelites did. God put the temple on the hill as a symbol of his presence, as a reminder of his purpose. And Tim Mackey from the Bible Project articulates the problem like this. He says, God's people were invited to know him and to rule with him, to partner with him, to make his, his presence and his ways known to the whole world. But the problem was they chose themselves and they chose to rule themselves without God. And they chose to compartmentalize God rather than partner with God. And the story unfolds and they end up in exile. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Here's a thought though. The temple that Solomon built is not the first temple. The temple that Solomon built is not the first temple. And if you've been around church for a while, you're going, yeah, we know it. There was a big tent. There was a tabernacle that um, was built at the foot of Mount Sinai when they were, during the Exodus. And that, yeah, there was. You're absolutely right. And the tabernacle was a mini version of the temple, like a, like a caravan version of the temple, a portable one. That's not what I'm talking about. Earlier than that, go back earlier in Scripture and you see another temple. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1, you see the very first temple. And lots of commentators believe that the, the Garden of Eden itself was the first temple. Are you with me? You think I've lost it? Stick with me, okay? Quoting here from G.K. Beale, Presbyterian minister and professor at Dallas Reform Seminary, N.T. Wright, Anglican bishop working out of St. Andrews, Tim Mackey Bible Project. So we've got a Presbyterian, an Anglican, and a Charismatic all saying the same thing. Doesn't often happen, so it doesn't. Let me convince you that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. The temple that Solomon built was full of all these carvings of um, palm trees and flowers and pomegranates and fruit. 
to represent the Garden of Eden, the creation of God. You with me? Not yet? Need more? Okay. Um, the temple was built facing east. The garden was in the east. Are you with me? Not yet? Need some more? Okay. Ezekiel, when he describes Eden, he calls it the holy mountain of God. But every other time that phrase, the holy mountain of God, is used in the Bible, it is referring to the temple at Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Do you want some more? Okay. The... The tree that God planted in the middle of the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yep, okay. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the place of wisdom. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they, they, they knew what was good and what was evil. They knew what was right and what was wrong. And disobedience from that moment on led to death. That tree was at the center of the Garden of Eden. What was at the center of Solomon's temple? the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. The ways of God that showed what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. And disobedience from the law of God led to what? Death. Just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had planted in the first garden. You with me? Do you want some more? Okay, I told you we're geeking out this morning. We're geeking out this morning. God created a garden of Eden And as he created it, he filled it with his presence. Adam and Eve were able to walk with God in the cool of the day. They were able to experience God's presence in that place on earth, in the Garden of Eden. Solomon built a temple, a physical space. God filled it with his presence, and the Hebrew people were able to go and meet with God and experience God and worship God and know God there. God created a space, and he filled it with his presence. He created a space, and he filled it with his presence. Here's the final one. Are you taking notes? You might need to watch this back and take notes. Here's the final one. The Garden of Eden was also the place where God's purpose was revealed for humanity. Adam and Eve were put into the garden and they were given two commands. The Hebrew words were samar and abad. Samar is to to keep, to care for, to look after. Abad is to cultivate and to grow and to expand. Adam and Eve are told to Samar and Abad in the Garden of Eden. When you go into Solomon's temple, the priests who work there are given exactly the same two commands, the same two Hebrew words, Samar and Abad, cultivate and keep. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And to burgle Tim Mackey's quote for a second time, just like the Hebrew people at the temple of Solomon chose not to partner with God, chose to embrace other gods, chose to do what they wanted to do themselves and to not live within God's purpose and to extend his rule into all the earth. Didn't Adam and Eve do exactly the same thing? Where they chose themselves and that they knew what was best rather than God? Mackie says that uh, Adam and Eve, just like, like God's people, are invited to know him, to partner with him, to rule with him, and instead they chose to rule by themselves. And the consequences were separation from God and death. 
And you read these stories in the Old Testament and you think, guys, how do they keep getting it wrong? How do they keep making the same mistake over and over again? And then I look in the mirror and I think to myself, why did I make that same mistake today as I made last week? Why am I asking for forgiveness for the same thing today as I had to ask forgiveness for last week? Can you relate to that? For the thoughts, for the words, for the things. And yet we never, ever in this story come to the end of God's love. We never, ever in this story come to the end of God's mercy. Because Solomon's temple, it wasn't the first temple. But here's the good news. Solomon's temple wasn't the last temple either. There was something else that came after. How many of you know that sometimes the old thing looks new? If I say that with me, sometimes the old thing looks new. Go for it. Sometimes the old thing looks new. I can hear you at home. Sometimes the old thing looks new. The previous church I worked in was in Balamoni. Anybody from Balamoni watching this morning, guys, really good to see you. Um, but the previous church was in Balamoni. It was planted in wait for it, 1646. It's a long time ago. It was one of the first, not the first, one of the first Presbyterian churches in Ireland. Planted in 1646. The current building was built in 1777. And when I walked into that church, in the pulpit where I stood and preached every week was a chair, a wooden chair that dated back to the very first church building there in 1646. And every Sunday, I would walk up into the pulpit and you sit down for a moment before the service starts on this chair that dated back to around 1646. And I'm sitting down thinking, I'm 14 stone. Is this antique going to hold? The only saving grace I had was the previous minister was 25 stone. Um, so I thought I was okay. Um, but it was class. It was so cool. And, and I'm a bit scruffy for a Presbyterian minister. I'm a bit scruffy for anybody, I think. But I'm a bit scruffy for a Presbyterian minister. And the folk in Balamoney and you guys in Orangefield have got used to that. But I would walk in to that church in Balamoney. And I would sit down in that chair and I would be reminded that since 1646, people had been faithfully preaching the gospel and the gospel hadn't changed. Maybe the music sounded a bit different. Maybe the style of preaching sounded a bit different. Maybe the clothes the minister wore looked a bit different. But it hadn't changed. It was still the gospel. Because sometimes with God, the old thing looks new, but it's still the same thing. I want you to hold on to that as we move into this section here of the sermon. Because the temple was a garden, and then the temple was a building and a place, and then the temple became a person. The temple became a person. Let's go for a whistle-stop tour through John's gospel. John chapter 1, you know, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. We're talking about Jesus here, the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling literally is pitched a tent, which is the same language that was used at the foot of Mount Sinai when God pitched His tents, built a tabernacle, amongst his people. 
the Word became flesh and tabernacled, templed, if you like, amongst us. Go into chapter 2 of John's Gospel. And Jesus walking past the, the temple, the physical building of the temple that had got knocked down and then rebuilt. Whole different story. We'll go there a different day. Jesus walking past the physical building of the temple. He looks at it. He says, destroy this temple and in three days, three days, we'll raise it up again. It took 46 years to build. I think that's right. Is that right, Gary? He's shrugging. We're going for 46 years. I think I read that this week. It's not in my notes. I think I read that this week. Um, destroy this temple and in three days we'll raise it up. And everybody thought, Jesus, you're mad. What? How? Three, three days. He was talking about himself. He was talking about dying on the cross and three days later getting raised back to life, the resurrection. Because in John chapter 19, what we see is that Jesus' own body became the place of sacrifice. Where his blood was spilt as he was nailed to a cross. No lambs and cattle being sacrificed. Jesus himself became the lamb of God. No physical building. Jesus himself became the place of sacrifice. And his sacrifice for, for one moment in history brought reconciliation to God for every moment in history, past, present, and future. Forgiveness came through Jesus' sacrifice. Reconciliation came through Jesus' sacrifice in that moment. Jesus, the temple of God, became the place of forgiveness and reconciliation for you and for me. You see, what we now know and what we believe is that in these gospel stories, as we read about the, the person of Jesus, that God put the fullness of his presence into Jesus Christ. God put the fullness of his presence into Jesus Christ. He was fully man and fully God. And everywhere Jesus walked on earth, heaven broke in. The reign and rule of God was present through Jesus' life and work because the person of God, the presence of God was in Jesus. Fully man and fully God. Everywhere Jesus went, forgiveness came in people's lives. Everywhere Jesus went, people were healed. Even the times the dead were raised. Why? Because God was fully present. Heaven was overlapping with earth in the person of Jesus Christ, as it had happened in the garden, as it had happened in the temple building, now in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you need forgiveness today, if you need healing today, you look to Jesus and you cry out to his name, and in the name of Jesus, forgiveness is offered. In the name of Jesus, healing comes. And if you need someone to pray with you today, there'll be an opportunity for that. You're in prayer ministry at the end. If you want to give your life to him, if you want to get forgiveness for your sins, if you want to become part of his family, if you need healing for anything, in the name of Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. God put the fullness of his presence into Jesus Christ. 
and for a small group of people, men and women, who who give their lives to him, who followed him around, who walked with him, they discovered not just the, the presence of God in Jesus, but the purpose of God for their lives revealed through Jesus, where Jesus said to them, I want you to go into all the earth and make disciples. I want you to go and to release the rule and reign of God, and I will be with you. I will be with you. Here's my final point. We're coming into land. Today, where is the temple today? Well, one day in the future, we know where it'll be because we're told it in Revelation and the prophets long for it and Jesus alluded to it. And then in the book of Revelation, we're giving pictures of it again and again and again. One day, Jesus will return to earth. There will be a judgment. And then he will bring about a renewal of earth and heaven. There will be a renewed earth and a renewed heaven. And God's presence will be not in a garden, not in a building, not in a person, but his presence will fill the new creation. His purpose will be complete. That's what we're told in Scripture. That's the picture that we have. And in a few weeks, we're going to preach that. You don't want to miss that story. More than that, you don't want to miss that happening. You only get to be part of that if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure, you've got to pray that prayer today. You don't want to miss that. But here's my question. Today, buildings are closed. Today, Jesus has ascended into heaven. He hasn't yet returned. Is there a temple today? Where is the temple today? Is there a temple today? One final story. When I was in youth fellowship many years ago, um, which is our t- was our teen youth program in Market Hill where I went to church. When I was in youth fellowship, uh, the, the leaders there w- would repeatedly come back to this one verse in Scripture in, in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, And I, I haven't memorized the verse because I heard it so, so often. And the re- I know why they were saying it to us. They were saying it to us because they knew we were teenagers and we were a little bit rebellious and a little bit naughty and they were trying to, to draw us back in to keep us in Jesus and keep us in the church and, and saying things like, you know, you shouldn't be going and get drunk. Don't get drunk. Um, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be. I wonder if any of you know what the verse is. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't be doing that because your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't be doing that because your body. Anybody else ever heard that? Any youth fellowship talk? Maybe, yeah. Maybe you still think it today. And that, that's exactly what it means. And I, I don't think you should be doing those things as a Christian because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But, but the verse also means more than that. The Greek word that's used is the word naos. And it's not a generic word for temple. The word naos is the word for the holy of holies, the inner sanctum, the place in the temple where the presence of God dwelt, the place where heaven overlapped earth, the place where God was fully present, the holy of holies. And Paul says to the church, and he says to you, and he says to me, your body is a temple, the holy of holies, for the Holy Spirit. That the presence of God now lives in you. 
The presence of God now dwells in you. Heaven and earth overlap in you. And again and again in the New Testament, we see this language that we are a temple, a living temple being knit together. The Spirit of God now dwells in you. We literally believe that. When you become a Christian, God's Holy Spirit comes and makes His home in your life. Why? Because what happened in the garden, what happened in the temple, what happened in Jesus is now happening in you and in me. God's presence dwells in us. God's Spirit dwells in us. And that the purpose of God now works itself out through your life and through my life, through your yes and amen, and through my yes and amen. That sounds really grand. It's the Abad and the Samar, the, the cultivating and the keeping, now working itself out as we partner with God to see His kingdom come and His will being done. It's the, the brother who has had a feud with a member of his family for years and years, becoming a Christian and realizing, I've been forgiven. It's now time for me to forgive my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad. It's the the eight-year-old kid praying for healing for their friend in school in the playground or over Zoom at the minute, as the case may be. It's the 80-year-old sitting at home feeling the Holy Spirit prompt them, speak to them, about a neighbor down the street who's elderly, who's lonely, and then lifting the phone and saying, God just led you on my heart. Are you okay? And a little bit of the kingdom breaks in as loneliness is pushed back. And hospitality and welcome come. It's the men and women who step into their places of work each day and think and pray, God, how do I partner with you? How does generosity and justice and equality and hope rise up through the very fabric of the work that I do and in the lives of the people that I work with? God's kingdom breaks in where you are. Here here it is. I'll bring the band back on stage. Here it is. God's mission is not to plant a temple in Jerusalem for people to come to. It's not what it is. God's mission is to colonize earth with many temples, 2.2 billion of them to be exact at this moment in history. That his presence and his love and his mercy flow through your life and flow through my life wherever we are on the planet. Christ in you, the hope of glory for your street, for your family, for this city, for this land, for this world.